Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin. I am an investor and the CEO of Cambridge House. And today I've got another fantastic conversation with Raul Powell, the co-founder of Real Vision TV, in addition to the founder and CEO of the global macro investor. Now, Raul is without question one of the brightest minds in macro finance and always highly interesting and entertaining to talk to. I love interviewing Raul and this conversation was no exception. Now, we actually had this chat about four months ago and the reason why that is valuable today is because I frequently revisit the interviews and conversations that I had four to eight months previous because it allows me to hold my guest forecast up to today's reality and say, where are they on track? Where are they clearly off track? And where are they kind of sideways to be determined, essentially? So this is a great conversation to complete that exercise. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, because we get into a lot of forecasting with Raul about mass liquidation events, about the death of macro finance, about the emerging markets trade, and these things that he's calling six to 12 months down the road from our conversation, and we're almost halfway there. So it's a very fun conversation to complete this exercise, and I recommend you give it a try. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did. We also talked about his portfolio as always, and, and at the time he was 98% of his liquid assets invested into cryptocurrencies, which has been an absolute roller coaster, and not much has changed in his mindset from this point. We covered a ton of evergreen topics like asset allocation strategy and time horizons and much, much more. But Raul, it's always a pleasure. This was a fun conversation. I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Raul Paul, this is The Jay Martin Show. Okay, guys, Jay Martin here, CEO of Cambridge House, and I am joined by Raul Paul, the founder and CEO of Global Macro Investor, co-founder of Real Vision Television. And prior to that comes to us with an extensive background at Goldman Sachs and GLG Global Macro Fund, one of the world's largest hedge funds. Raul, how are you? I'm great. I can't complain. I live in the Cayman Islands. While you're in the cold north, <laughs> it's 84 degrees, a nice trade wind and turquoise sea here. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, I'm in the Northwest too. I'm in a little town called Squamish, north of Vancouver. And man, like we we should be building a boat right now. I don't think it stopped pouring in about three weeks where everybody's drowning. So last time we caught up was the spring of 2020, last spring. Interesting and time. Interesting time. Yeah, we were just talking about what a, what a crazy uh, orchestration of pivots everybody was going through. You know, I have to thank you because actually it was that conversation that you and I had that led me to increase my positions in, in Bitcoin and Ethereum and a couple of the capital markets opportunities that are leveraged to the crypto prices, which obviously make me feel super smart this winter. Um, but one other thing that you touched on that I want to revisit was your, your three-phase unfolding thesis, right? And you've been talking about this prior to March and the sky falling, but you know, at a super high level, kicking off with some kind of a crisis that would lead to a liquidation event, sending people into panic and creating a shortage of dollars, the liquidation phase one, followed by the Fed swooping in, saving people, creating phase two, which is the hope phase, right? Everything's going to be all right. We've been rescued. Uh, but truthfully, it's a false hope leading to phase three, which is the insolvency phase, which I found to be the most interesting that you were discussing. And so we were sort of you know, if, if I were to speculate, we're kind of leading into that now, right? And the insolvency phase being essentially, you know, you can't recreate business incomes. You can't print those, right? Correct. How do you deal with that, right? Um, it's been 
uh, I mean, it's only been six months since we last spoke, but it could have been 10 years considering what's changed. Has the thesis changed at all? And can you revisit that for me? Well, the thesis changed from then because the Fed backstopped the credit markets. So that meant anybody who could borrow money did. So they all levered up even more, which saved the big companies and sacrificed the small companies. So the insolvency is not happening at kind of General Electric level. It's happening at Main Street level. Yeah. And that's terrifying, right? Because it is actually the largest part of the economy, which people don't realize. But it's restaurants, it's bars, it's taxis, it's just general regular service industries um, are getting destroyed. And this is not going to stop. We talk about the vaccine, the market's trading vaccine hopes. But when you talk about revenue, there ain't no revenue. And it's only going to get worse. If you're a European, you're totally screwed right now. The UK's in lockdown. Germany's going to go into lockdown. Most of Europe's going to go into lockdown. And my guess is it's slightly contentious, but Biden comes in on January 20th. We're going to be approaching half a million deaths in the US. He's going to have to force a lockdown of some sort. So my guess is the market is setting itself up for another liquidation event of some sort. But the underlying insolvency event is still ongoing. And this vaccine, yes, it's getting rolled out, but it's going to take a long time for the average person to get a vaccine. We've got six months between now and vaccine data of a large proportion of the population, of which there's not enough revenue. So I don't know how this is going to be dealt with. The only answer we've got is more fiscal stimulus. Right. Because no monetary stimulus doesn't really work. Who's right. it helping? Right? So it's fiscal stimulus, and maybe the, the, uh, the central banks backstop the governments to do it. So that's the world we're in. That's mm-hmm. the only way is to give money to these businesses to stop an even larger solvency event. Now, interesting enough, the BIS and the IMF have all been using my terminology that we're now in the insolvency phase. And they say people don't understand how severe this is. And I think that is the real truth, is people look at financial markets and think it's fine. Right. It's not. It's not. Yeah. And does, does, does the insolvency phase, as it's enveloping, trigger? I mean, you touched on this trigger, more liquidation crises along the way. And do we kind of pinball down there for a little while? That, that much I don't know. I'm guessing yes. Okay. But I don't know because the market's looking for more stimulus and saying it's okay. And the equity market's basically offsetting any of the, the printing that's going on with the central bank. So it's it's really not clear how this is going to pe- play out. But one thing I do know is the market is taking an all-in bet on reflation right now. And okay. I find it very interesting when the market goes all-in on one bet with limited information. So therefore, the probability of something to upset that apple cart is rising. So in a second liquidation crisis, do you foresee the US dollar being the biggest benefactor as it was last March? Yeah, I think the US dollar and rates again, I mean, right now, as we're speaking, the US dollar is finding a footing, and it's kind of unstable, destabilizing a couple of things. Rates are going up. So 10-year rates hit just over 1% today. Uh, 110, they could go to 120. If they go to 120, the equity market's going to be under big pressure. Then rates come back down again because the Fed step in and the markets liquidate. And so I think there is a lot of risks to navigate. I think the dollar is part of this equation. Gold's getting sold off because um, because of the dollar. Um, So, you know, it's not clear yet. It's going to be messy for a while, I think. 
Okay, so at what point then or should, I guess, and not at what point, but should people start considering moving to cash, Raul? Any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I don't have any equity positions. I'm basically all crypto. Uh, for Global Macro Investor, I've got some gold and some bond call options. Okay. Uh, and I'm just buying some S&P puts. Um, I don't tend to like to buy equity puts because I, I find they tend to go to zero all the time. <laughs> okay. You don't make a lot of money out of trying to be the genius short in the equity market. But I just feel like we've got this risk set up coming again where we could end up with this you know, wily coyote moment where everybody's looking that way and the economy is about to go that way. So I think whether it's cash or some hedges, just be careful. You know, correlations fall apart in these things. You know, gold can get a washout. You know, even Bitcoin can get a washout later on. Who knows? Just be on your toes. This is not a straightforward situation. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so that, yeah, I mean, that was obviously my question. How do you play this? Right. And and you're you're saying it's essentially what I'm hearing is Bitcoin, gold, cash. That's your safest bet in unknown. Yeah, I, would, I would think about in this sell-off buying some calls on bond options. You know, you can buy like March TLT calls in the US. Yeah. That's pretty straightforward and won't cost you a lot of money. But if I'm right, they're right at the top of the range. They could go all the way back down to the bottom of the range pretty quickly. So, yeah. you know, that's not bad. If I'm wrong, you lose your premium. Fine. Okay. You've got Bitcoin, you've got gold. They should do fine. So just thinking of those things, maybe, you know, if you're a Canadian, think about hedging your currency, you know, because the Canadian dollar's done reasonably well. Could that reverse for a bit? Quite possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, last we spoke, you had about, I think it was your your portfolio that you're referring to, your personal portfolio that's now almost all crypto, was 25% in gold at that time. And then, you know, as of, I think it was like November 29th, you fired up that tweet, I'm selling my gold, I'm moving 98% of my investable assets into crypto. And again, I mean, tons has changed just since November 29th. So can you update us on where you stand today? And, and are you making any plans to diversify in the near term? Or are you comfortable with that? Right now, and I guess I'm asking on the back of a 400% price appreciation in Bitcoin since then. It's done pretty well. But compared to prior cycles, it should go a lot further. But all prior cycles have multiple 40%, 30% corrections. Yes. I think it probably goes higher before we get the correction. So Bitcoin might go to 50,000. There's an even an outside chance that we go up to 100,000 by mid-Feb and then correct 40%. I don't know. My way of playing that is I'm all in. I'm not expecting to, to close any positions until the end of the year, maybe into next year. So I will just, if I, can, if I, if I get any more cash, I will just buy a dip. Um, and I'll be tilting it more towards Ethereum than Bitcoin. I'm currently 80-20. Yeah. Um, add to Ethereum because I think it's going to outperform in this cycle. Yeah. Okay. That, that helps answer a question for me. And, you know, when I see an asset class appreciate 400% a year, uh, you know, we've all seen a thousand charts that look like that and 99% of them end the same way uh, with some kind of a correction, right? And obviously it's incredibly tempting to take some profits and take cash off the table. I've exercised restraint again, based off the conversation, actually not that we had last spring, but just commentary. I've heard you talking about your strategy. You're not trying to trade it. You're like, don't, I'm not losing sleep over this, right? I have enough confidence in the long-term well, put basis. It, put it this way. So it's now at 40,000 as we speak. Sure. 
if it had a 50% crash, it's still at 20,000, which is still higher than any of us got in there. Right. So, you know, it was there like a month ago at 20,000. Yeah. So put yeah. it in perspective. Yes. yes, it looks horrible when you see a PL go down, but it's okay. And if you can then add more for the next run up, because these crypto cycles tend to be much longer and much sharper than we used to in traditional markets. Yeah. So that's okay. You know, I think the chances are it goes somewhere between two and 300,000 by, you know, Feb, March next year. Okay. Yeah. Now, you, you briefly mentioned there, you're, you're looking at Ethereum, you were weighted 80-20 BTC to Ethereum, and are you expecting that to change in 2021? Yeah, um, I'm hoping to add to Ethereum um, soon, um, and I will probably continue to add to that, because if I look at the chart of Ethereum versus Bitcoin, it looks like it's basing. Usually, it's, Ethereum is also very much following the 2017 Bitcoin cycle, both in price, in number of wallet addresses, in market cap. I mean, it's identical. It's it's kind of spooky, which mm. tells you this is being driven by Metcalfe's law and adoption effects than almost anything else. Mm. So if that's the case, then we know Ethereum has a decent chance of getting to 20,000, considering right now it's at 11,800. Oh, sorry, 1,180. Yeah. I mean, I mean, holy shit! That that's a that's a value proposition. Even with Bitcoin going to two hundred thousand to three hundred thousand, one's eight x, one's sixteen x from here. Yes, yes. Okay. Now you said hoping to add soon. So walk me through your decision making process there, if you could. Uh, no decision. It's cash. <laughs> I, okay. I'm all, I'm all in. Right. As soon as I get some extra cash, I'll put it in. Got it. Got it. Got it. So, okay. You know, that's how that's how I'm dealing with this is. You know, and I'm hoping I get a dip, but if not, I still buy it because I'm not worried about the 50% correction. Okay. Just to, just to clear, why am I not worried about the 50% correction? I've got no leverage in the trade. Yeah. I know what I'm. I can stand to lose. Yes. You know, it's not. I'm an all-in. This is my whole life is riding on this. It's not. Yeah. This is a very significant bet for me, but taken from a calculated risk perspective. Very important to understand. Thank you for for expanding on that and clarifying that. What's up, everybody? Sorry for the interruption. Quick note, if you enjoy these conversations, I publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where I share my top takeaways, lessons learned, and any action steps I might be taking as a consequence in the market. Sign up at cambridgehouse.com. I publish every week and it's free. Now back to the conversation. I want to jump into another theme I've heard you cover, which is essentially the end of the US dollar bull market and the emergence of emerging economies. Uh, and a quote that I, I just loved, I believe you tweeted it was, maybe the best strategy for investors, this is not verbatim, is to buy emerging markets and go to the beach. So walk me through that thought process and what does that mean? So firstly, let me just give you a path. I think there's a correction coming as we talked about at the beginning. I think it'll hit emerging markets too. The dollar goes up. Okay. Emerging markets are going to get smoked. Everything does. Yeah. Everything does. But in the end of this process, the dollar is either likely to break lower over time. I think it goes okay. higher first, but over time breaks lower. Or my actual hunch is it trades in a sideways range. 
which is miserable for FX traders, amazing for emerging markets. Stable US dollar is beautiful. So if I look at the chart of the EEM, there's a simple ETF that you can trade. Look at the monthly chart of that or the underlying MSCI Emerging Markets Index. And it's just a massive wedge pattern. I mean, it's a thing of beauty. Um, and it looks like you've got mo most of these emerging market cycles tend to give 400% upsides. And yeah. that's how it always plays out. So we are almost record undervaluation of emerging markets versus developed markets. We're the largest outperformance of the S&P in history against emerging markets. We are set up for a hell of an opportunity. And if the dollar stabilizes for any period of time and there's some global recovery, which obviously will be coming, these countries have less debts, less aging demographics, less problems, more outperformance. So, and it is generally a seven to 10 year cycle. So you can buy emerging markets and go to the beach. And how do you, how do you play that market? What are the, what are the options available to investors, Raul? So how you asset allocate is three buckets, liquidity preference, time preference, risk preference. So liquidity preference, you want the thing that's liquid that you can get in and out of when you start the trade, when you don't know it's confirmed. Okay. Because you want to be able to get, get in and out quick, right? You'll do the same in crypto. It's Bitcoin or nothing at that point. Then you start setting your time preference. Okay, I feel like I've, I'm on the trend and I've captured what I think is the start of a larger move. So therefore, I'm willing to hold longer holding periods. So then I might start looking for other areas or I build a larger position. And let's say EEM is the chosen starting vehicle because it's an ETF to trade in and out. Then you get into risk preference, the next part of the cycle. When it's established, all investors then start moving out the risk curve. And that usually happens maybe a year or so afterwards, maybe two years, where they start thinking, actually, I want to juice this trade. So we see it in crypto markets. It goes to Ethereum, and then it goes to Cardano and other things. And then maybe it's DeFi, right? People move out the risk curve because they think, okay, the trend is set and I can hold a bit, of, bit more risk than I want. Credit investors do the same. They start with single A, they go down to you know, triple Bs, and then they go into junk the same way in private sector lending. Okay. So the next phase behind that is then choosing which markets do you really want to own? Where could you get alpha above and beyond the EEM? My view for that is India. I think it is the next, the next decade. I mean, I spent I'm half Indian. I spent a lot of time there. Um, and this market... What's going on in India at an infrastructure level, technology level is mind-blowing. So there is a lot going on there. It's still early. It's like being in China in the 90s. So I'm very interested in that. I'm also interested in the countries that surround India that have young populations and um, uh, low debts, high household savings. I call them the monsoon countries. The monsoon trade winds was the old spice route. And India's at the center, it's basically the Indian Ocean. That is the more the less investable, which is the Swahili coast of Africa, Kenya, um, Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, down to South Africa. But on the other side, you've got Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia. On the north, you've got the, the riskiest but most rewarding market of all is Iran. Um, you've got Dubai, you've got Saudi, you've got Morocco. Egypt, there's a bunch of these countries that have incredible demographics. And there'll be some will be long, some will be shorts, but you'll have a lot to play in that sphere. But with India as the core allocation that should outperform.
Interesting. Okay. Uh, one more topic that I want to cover with you is you wrote this piece relatively recently, kind of covering what you term to be the death of macro and walk through a variety of outcomes that we could see unfold that might be a bit of a stretch, but likely not. Could, could you start just giving us sort of the, the headline uh, summary of what this concept yeah, so is? Really simple, right? I'm a macro guy. I've been doing this for 30 years. Everybody I know has made money from one trend, rates. Rates going lower, low volatility, massively liquid, massive leverage. So you can take um, liquidity preference because you're in the most liquid thing on earth. You've got time preference because rates are going lower from demographics, deflation, technology, globalization. And you can take risk in that trend because you've got leverage. So right. that was the biggest generator of alpha for the entire macro industry forever. The other generator of alpha is FX. Right. Liquid markets. Problem is the FX trends have been getting mute, more muted over time. As we moved into the WTO agreement, before WTO, countries used to use tariffs. And to offset the tariffs, you have to let your FX move a long way. So if you look at the charts of DXY going back to the 80s, it would go up 100%, down 50%, but it's got much more subdued because yeah. everybody's now using monetary policy to try and weaken their currencies at the same time, which is one of the reasons gold goes up, Bitcoin goes up. Now, I'm, as you, I mentioned earlier, I'm worried that dollar stays within a range. And many of these major currencies, if you look at the Japanese yen for the last 30 years, it's basically been pinned in a range around 105. It goes up and down cyclically, but doesn't go anywhere. Right. So if we've got a range between currencies and the IMF are trying to push people towards a range, this new Bretton Woods movement, well, that's the death of FX. The bond market's going to go to roughly zero trade sideways for 20 or 30 years. I don't buy the secular inflation, hyperinflation story. I think it's Japanification driven by demographics, debt, dem um, technology, and uh, globalization. So if rates go nowhere, that alpha's gone. The biggest market on earth. Credit, same, because the Fed have now backstopped the credit market, so you can't make a lot of money out of credit. So credit's gone. Bonds have gone, apart from cyclical trades, and FX may be cyclical as well. So you've got no secular bull market, bear market, or anything in any of these. That is the death of macro. Okay. It is simple. And equities are not macro instruments. You know, if a bond is 80%, 90% macro, and 10% emotion, positioning, equities are the opposite. They're like 10% macro and 90% noise. Right. Right. Um, so that makes it very hard. So that pushes you out for emerging markets, which can be okay. macro, and it pushes you into crypto, which also can be macro. That's what I was wondering. You know, well, then where does cash go, right? Without the bond market, the FX market. Well, so, so let's go to that world. So you are massive calpers, right? You're calpers. And bonds, bonds now offer no protection, no returns. You don't get much from FX risk, and FX isn't going anywhere. Equities are wildly overvalued in, in the US. And there's no juice to be had from credit, right? But you've got this ticking time bomb of your pension holders. You need to deliver them a return. Your answer has to be emerging markets because you need to find returns. Now, Indian bonds, 6%. India is an expensive stock market, but with that demographic, the chances are it could triple or quadruple from here. So you don't get that opportunity. And Grantham Mayo, you know, they produce that you know, expected future returns. Expected future returns of developed market equities are negative. 
developed market credit negative, developed market government bonds negative, emerging markets positive. Right, right. Okay, now one, one thing that just struck me is you mentioned India specifically when you're analyzing a variety of emerging markets to pay attention to, you know, also one of the largest purchasers of gold. And so as this nation becomes more affluent and more engaged, talk to me about how that might impact the gold price. Do you think about it like that or is it relevant? What do you think? Well, we don't know whether there'll be a secular shift away as they move to digital money and other things. But gold is historically Middle East and India, all of those nations that I talked about are big gold holders. It's very much cultural. So yes, I think at the margin, it's powerful for gold. You know, I'm, you know, I think the gold, the gold run goes for quite a few years. You know, it, it probably won't outlast emerging markets, but it'll probably do another five years from here. Okay. So then I just have to ask, you know, and I'm sure you've answered this question a hundred times, so I apologize, but based on that outlook, why 98% into crypto? Why not have some, I know you've got global macro exposure to gold, but is it just because of the asymmetry that you see in the Bitcoin bets or, or why? Okay. Time horizon matters. Okay. So my crypto bet is the next 12 months. I see. My crypto bet is that it's going to destroy every other asset on earth performance wise. And it's going to suck everybody in on a massive reflexive loop. Yes. Well, the market cap goes up, the more the institutions need to buy it because they need to not lag behind the institutions that already bought it. The more it goes up, the more retail buy it becomes a very reflexive loop. Yes. So that is too powerful. I look at the charts of Bitcoin versus every asset and it's basically eating them all. So that will play out. And as you've said before, we know how these things end. They end up in a fair market for a while. That's normal. It's just human behavior. It's how markets work. No, no market goes through a big bull phase or a big bear phase without a massive reversal phase for a while. Yes. So what I'm trying to do is set up a time horizon for people to understand is, okay, this is my bet for now. Yes. May not like the crypto bet. So start looking at the emerging market bet. But I still think there's six months risk window here that I wouldn't do the trade. Okay. So I'm okay. Six months risk. Yeah. Because of that liquidation like, event, right? Crypto may or may not have a correction that it should do, but just an ordinary correction and then it should explode. Okay. Emerging markets, if you can buy them into a sell off, fantastic. That will set you up. You can go to the beach and forget about it. Yes. Got it. Then as that trend reestablishes and it starts proving itself, you go further out into the risk curve. So you start going into India and you start going into other markets. Um, gold should get taken along most of that ride too. So there's a whole phasing here. So yeah, I know people get confused, but I see things in future expected probabilities. And yeah. there's a path to get there. The path isn't everything all in now. It's like, this is the phase for crypto. We're at a risk phase for markets. That risk phase for markets will set us up for emerging markets. Because the dollar may go up first. Then let's say the dollar stabilizes or weakens. Emerging markets will take off. It will start sucking in equity market capital um, out of the US system. So that's how I said that. That's very clear. Thank you. Okay. That, that makes we. Uh, I love that. Thank you for explaining that to me. Okay. And my, I guess my last question for you would be, you know, in your death of macro article, you, you touched on the idea of a debt jubilee. And it's hard, to be honest, for me to wrap my mind around that, Raul, like how that would occur. And so can, can you just explain if, and I, I don't know if you want to touch on the likelihood, but what is the likelihood of a, of a debt jubilee occurring and how does that unfold? Um, the answer is none of us knows, right? We're now into the real speculative thing. All sure. we know is the IMF, 
BIS, Bank of England, Bank of Japan, PBOC, ECB, and the Fed have all said digital currency. The IMF, the BIS, and others have said, we also need to move away from the dollar because it's 80% of the world's trade is in dollars and only 25% of the world's GDP. There's a problem. There's not enough dollars around. So when things go wrong, everyone's starved of dollars. It's unfair for, let's say, Brazil to be beholden to the US dollar when its main trading partner is China. Right. Why do we need this middle currency? Right. Yeah. So the Brazilian economy goes up and down according to the dollar. This, this is untenable. So what you need is to change the mechanism. So the IMF are talking about baskets of currencies, whether it's trade baskets or let's say a commodity basket currency um, based around, you know, China, Brazil, South Africa, Canada, Australia. You know, you, you make it so you've got a basket that suits commodity producers. That can happen. All of this stuff can happen. The other thing they've talked about is the Bretton Woods moment where, look, in six months' time, we're going to be talking about a fiscal stimulus of some order of magnitude that we can't get our heads around now. Because if I'm right, this insolvency continues and the COVID issues continue for a while, government's going to be forced to do something bigger. And the IMF said, what we should do is coordinate it. We should get everybody to do it at the same time so it doesn't destroy anybody's currency. So if we all agree amongst G20, yeah. That we're all going to print 20%, 30%, 40% of GDP in one go for fiscal stimulus. Yeah. And then massively spend on our economies. You are going to rescue the global economy. Sure. The price of gold will go up and Bitcoin will go up for sure because yeah. you know, you're devaluing the price of fiat money. Yeah. But what is interesting is what happens after that? Maybe they say, okay, if you want to be in this basket, you're only allowed to grow money supply by 2%. Okay. Huh. Then it looks like Bitcoin. Sure, government's cheap and everything else. It's not the same. But what it does is it changes FX volatility forever. Definitely. Um, I think that's a possibility. Is it a high possibility? I don't know. Hmm. Um, I also think that they could say, right, what we're going to do is every nation is going to issue zero coupon perpetual bonds, you know, no maturity date bonds. Okay. Or two percent, zero, you know, two percent no maturity bonds. And then you kind of allow this, let's say you take money supply at three percent or four percent or whatever measure of monetary inflation you want. And hey presto, ten years later, it's all gone to zero. Right. Right. That is actually the way to do it without destroying the world. Um, you destroy the power of be it money versus other assets, that's okay because we know how to hedge that. Right. And then in that scenario, when it's all said and done, and you touched on this in the article, the importance or I guess the, the value of those hedged assets like gold, Bitcoin become less significant, correct? Because the money right. supply up to 2%. And-, and let's say Bitcoin in that process gets to a million dollars and gets to maturation phase. Right. Then it becomes a much less volatile asset. It's used as a store of value, it's used as a collateral, same as gold is really, you know, gold gets used as collateral as a store of value. It's volatile-ish, but not super volatile. Yeah. And Bitcoin stops the massive price appreciation, as does gold. Yeah. It settles down for a while. Right. Much like, you know, after the leaving of the gold standard, the gold price shot up, then it collapsed, then it stabilized for a long period of time. That kind of thing. Yes. Okay. 
Look, Raul, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I think you do very important work. And I just want to thank you for sharing your perspective on this show and others. And I know that was the catalyst behind founding Real Vision. It was in response to 2008. From your seat, you were able to see things that a lot of people couldn't because you had the insider's view. And that was the inspiration to found Real Vision, which is now, it's like the backstage pass to macro finance. So, um, yeah, we're trying to teach people not to think about what they see on the news flow today and react. Right. We're trying to teach people to think of knock-on effects. That's really what Real Vision does. It yes. helps you think through, like we've just talked about, a whole bunch of scenarios that have probability outcomes, no certainties. But we've got it, we've just established a framework, you and I, of which we can follow. And we yes. can say, no, it's actually not going that way. Or yes, it is, and we can increase bets here. That's what I'm really trying to teach people to do is navigate the future and not today. I love it. Thank you. Not at all. Great to be here as ever. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.